Welcome to the Pactum. This is Pat Abendroth, and I am with Mike Grimes. Episode 137, Objections to Covenant Theology. But before we talk about that, Mike, what in the world is happening in your world? I, I want to talk about food. We, we haven't been talking about food. Food on, and I have a, a kind of a tough relationship. You know, it, it's a challenge sometimes. <laughs> but we have gotten some complaints lately because we haven't done any taste tests, no That's spicy right. stuff. I just want... So just tell, tell me what it was. It, okay. Tell me what it is. I want the Pactumverse to know and understand that I have tried this so that I can let you know if it's worth your while. So not in, and not it in is, the studio. This, not in the studio, but yep. let me tell you, Pactumverse listeners, if you've had the Lord's Chicken, which I'm sure you have. The Lord's at, Chicken. At Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Remember we got the solo, what was it called again? Someone uh, told us to go get one yeah. chicken bite or whatever. Ch- yeah, this yeah, the uh, uh what was it called? Solo chica. Solo chica, yeah, that was it. Okay. <laughs> well this been... isn't the solo chica. This okay. is if you've been to Chick-fil-A lately, you've got to have the honey pepper pimento chicken sandwich. Oh, oh come on. My Pim- I've never had pimento. Goodness. It's I don't think I'm ever gonna have it's... is pimento what's in the green olive? Pimento, yeah, some kind of little pepper thing, but Okay. I'm here to tell you, Pactumverse, get yourself to Chick-fil-A as fast <laughs> as possible, obeying all speed limits, and get you one of those. Oh, you know what? I'll tell you what, Mike. It, Sunday after the service, why don't we'll go together. We'll go to Chick-fil-A. We'll go together, sun- yeah. On Sunday. I'll buy. <laughs> I heard everything at Chick-fil-A is free on Sundays. It is. <laughs> Take your bulletin, and they'll give you extras or something like that. <laughs> if you break in, you can do it. But it's pretty tasty. It's not spicy, is it? It's got a little kick, yeah, because it's got the jalapenos on it as well as the pimento Ooh, thing. It's got okay. the pimento cheese, to it, but uh, it's got honey, so it's a, like sweet and spicy. Oh my goodness! My, I don't even know how to describe how amazing. It's probably one of the most amazing fast food, if you'd call Chick Fil A fast food sandwiches <laughs> I've ever. Had. I'm building it up, but I'm telling you, my youngest son Owen, he sent a picture out to the whole family group chat, and he was like all about it. Well, and I thought I just don't. It looked like cheese whiz, pimento am- cheese whiz on the sandwich. It's amazing. Okay. And then All if right. it drips down onto the little holder, you can use the fries and scoop oh, it. Oh, man. Dude. All right. That <laughs> so that's sounds, what's going on. What about that you? Is what's, what's going on with me? Just super busy, getting lots, lots of things done. Fall is back at us and classes and yep. all of the things, all the things are that we need up. to do. So I know we talk a lot about covenant theology on the Pactum. We do. Uh, we talk a lot about covenant theology in part because there is a certain book called Covenant Theology. It's true. Ed Evandroth has just released a book on covenant yes, theology. Yes, oh, that's what I want to say. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so his book, I mean, dude, have you seen that thing? <laughs> so it's getting great traction. I've said that before and we're happy about that. But when things get great traction, there is also, well, you know, sometimes a little pushback a little hostility and so we're hearing it probably more than ever so we are going to talk about objections to covenant theology today yes and it just so happens that in the pactum studio all we need to do is uh, walk down the hallway right and uh, tap on the door of our resident theologian and we can make it happen we can and so just to kind of you know give it a different vibe and you know up the scholarship level a bit yes uh, we have a guest with us today today we have returning to the pactum to talk about this important matter is chris peterson what do you think about that pimento sandwich chris (laughs) sound good or not uh i have to think about that (laughs) come on (laughs) you're gonna get it it's amazing chris would go with no bun Yes, I, I would. It depends on the day, right? Right, right. We have a break it day. Is it a break it day? Okay. Is it a break it day or not? Okay. Yeah. Okay. We'll plan that. Plan that. There you go. 
Well, people always like the episodes when we have Chris on, so we yeah. figured we would talk about this controversial topic with Chris on, and then, you know, they would have to like it. Yeah. It's the siege. You had the counseling with Chris, now what, covenant theology with Chris? Yes. Are we going to keep this going? Yeah. Oh, that works. Yeah. It does. Covenants with Chris kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Crispy chicken fingers with Chris. <laughs> or something like that. Oh, man. Wow. Okay, we should probably say, right. uh, before we get to objections, and we've got a list of about 10 here. Yes. And I think this is going to be a warm-up because we're going to do another episode with Chris related, but we'll save that to the end. You'll have to listen to learn about that. Yeah, listen in to learn about that upcoming episode. So if we're going to talk about what covenant theology is, we're going to say it is a divinely inspired way of of interpreting history, of interpreting the Bible, is what I'm going to say, because we have Romans 5. Romans 5 is divinely inspired. And the Apostle Paul, you know, through one man's disobedience, we have mm-hmm. condemnation. Right. And through one man's obedience, we have justification. And so we read all of human history that way. And we know that's the right way to read human history because Paul's an apostle. Yeah. Writing under, under inspiration. So I, I would mm-hmm. want to say that. I'd also want to say uh, it's, it's a way of reading the Bible um, that comes from God. And when you mm-hmm. categorize everything and you try to put things in proper categories, you'd say, okay, there's a covenant of redemption, uh, the intra-Trinitarian agreement, the pact between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thus the pactum the, huh? to redeem yep. elect sinners in time. Uh, then we have the covenant of works, which would be the obligation to do what's right that Adam was under, uh, led to condemnation because he broke it. And then the only way anybody's ever been saved or ever, ever will be saved um, would be or, or to be in a right relationship with God, to be in a covenantal relationship with God that's positive uh, would be by grace. So mm-hmm. we call it the covenant of grace. Mm-hmm. So categories, labels, a way to read the Bible and have it not be like alphabet soup. Um, would be what we're dealing with here. So, uh, you know, I did say Chris is the resident theologian. Um, You know, a long time ago, a former professor of mine uh, said something to the effect, Pat, you guys could have a, you could start a school. um, And I think Omaha Bible Church would succeed if you guys had a Bible school or some kind of college or something. He said, and you know, the the thing is, you can do a lot of the teaching. uh, And the good thing is Chris Peterson is with you so he could teach Hebrew. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. <laughs> Which was a nice way of saying that was my old Hebrew professor. <laughs> and he knew Chris was uh, the true scholar, not me, because That's I didn't funny. do so great in Hebrew. So thanks, Dave Duell. If you're out there listening somewhere, um, I'll take it in, in jest. It's just fine. That's funny. Chris, anything else you want to say as far as super basic, simple definitions of covenant theology? Did I do, did I do okay? Yeah, no, it's, it's encouraging. I, we just reemphasize the divine author. He's given us his interpretation. And I think we want to take that as our interpretive grid for understanding his word. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. I awesome. love that. Yeah. And, you know, we, I, a little bit more about that is we could say you don't need to know the labels. The labels aren't the important thing, um, but they have come down to us through history. Mm-hmm. So we could just lock ourselves up in a room and start reading the Bible thousands and thousands and thousands of times mm-hmm. and trying to figure it all out and how it all makes sense. Um, and through much prayer and a whole lot of time, right. we would be on to something, um, but we, don't, we would still be without all of the debates, all of the blood, sweat, and tears right. yeah. and dialogue that has happened throughout the church, uh, the history of the church. So we're, we're benefiting from those who've gone before us. Yeah, amen. To say these are well-worn paths; they're not inspired, but Scripture is, and we think these these are the right ways to interpret Scripture. Yeah, yeah. inspired so, interpretation. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So objection number one, some of these sound like they're coming out of left field, but they're real life objections. So the first objection to covenant theology would be that covenant theology is, is problematic because it, it gives assurance. It might give assurance (laughs) of salvation. That's a problem. Yeah. (laughs) To be honest, that's the the first time I've heard of this, uh, just today. (laughs) That's a shocker. Um, as we know on the the counter reformation with Rome, they're actually, uh, pronouncing a condemnation on assurance. So that, that's a shocker. I would not want to be affiliated with that at all, but yes, it does give assurance. Uh, so for sure, for sure, Roman Roman Catholics would not like classic covenant theology, No, right? Absolutely not. So where is it that they condemn this counter-reformation would be Council of Trent? Trent, yes, it's very clear. They officially anathematize or Mm -hmm. damn the gospel that brings assurance. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So if you're not a Roman Catholic uh, and you don't (laughs) like assurance, just know that you might be more Romish uh, than you realized. Absolutely. Um, That's one of the blessings of justification. That's... Uh, one of the first fruits that come from understanding that we've been declared right with God through faith in Christ is that we have assurance because it's Christ who has done the work and it's God's declaration of of our lives in Jesus Christ. He's He's paid the penalty for our sin and He's provided the righteousness that is required according to His law. So what does that give to us is assurance based on His promise and His word. So it's an immediate, uh, wonderful uh, fruit of our justification in Christ. So why would you want to go against that? It, it's... That's irrational <laughs> from a <laughs> well, reform perspective. I think it's a, it's a good question. Why would you want to go against it? Yeah. Uh, why would you want to go against it when the Bible's so clear? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace yeah. with God. Yeah, right. But you see where assurance really does come from. Well, it's it's patently biblical, but when right. you understand federal headship, the, yeah. the headship of Adam and then Jesus, uh, that's sure for justification, it... Mm-hmm. We, we have assurance. That's one of the mind-blowing things about Romans chapter 8. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities. It goes on and on and on. Um, you don't get any sense that, well, um, you, you get in by faith, uh, but you stay in by your works. Right. Nothing yeah. can take away your assurance if you're in Christ, the perfect federal head. Yeah, absolutely. And even if you throw out the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace per se— you're still left with uh, the new covenant. And, and what are you going to say about the new covenant? It is still covenantal. Hmm. Uh, Christ is fulfilling for us by his blood. So even there, there should be assurance built in just because of the nature of a covenant. Hmm. So then you're, I'm left with, well, what are, what are we trying to, to accomplish here? An Arminian view? Um, is it really an issue of election, uh, God's sovereignty, God's foreordination? Is that really what we're harping against? Hmm. It's kind of fascinating to me. I, I, I would recommend that people study Roman Catholic theology. Hmm. Not because I want them to swim the Tiber. Yeah. Right. Um, Chris and I have ridden bikes over the Tiber before. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I consider that you your, got your biking experience going or reinvigorated. I, I owe it to Chris. <laughs> I owe it to Chris. So <laughs> Chris and I are in the Vatican bookstore, mm. and uh, they they sell indulgences there. So oh. you know we were we had the calculator. They had a big desktop calculator and typing in six 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 and different things. And <laughs> up to no good. <laughs> Yes. But then I got Chris because I said, hey, Chris, over here. And we're sleep deprived, you know, right. flying yeah. overseas, coming from India. Hey, Chris, over here. Look, there's a MacArthur study Bible. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you think Chris said? What? Where? Where? Ser- Seriously? Seriously? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it wasn't true. That's but amazing. Man, we ate some awesome food. Yeah. That's for sure. That's funny. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> to, to the point, um, I think people should study a fair bit of Roman Catholic theology because they've been such an important debate partner mm-hmm. with us as Protestants. And because so many times evangelicals sound like the Roman Catholics because they don't realize what Rome has said. Right. That's fair. They, they think somehow that, you know, Rome is Pelagian. Rome is not Pelagian. They're semi-Pelagian. Yeah. And so when you as an evangelical say it's faith in Christ, but you have to do works to finally get justified. Guess what? That's that's very Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. That's very semi-Pelagian. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's a huge problem. So let's, let's welcome assurance. Yeah. Um, you know, can you think of a different religion that gives you this kind of assurance based upon the sure work of another? Yeah. No No wonder it's scandalous in a, in a great way. Hallmark of Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, the second ob- objection we want to talk about is we're, we've got a list of about 10 here, right? Better speed Great. up. No more, sto- speed no up. more stories no more story time, about okay? bicycles. Unless we want to share a pimento sandwich, we can pause for that. But our second <laughs> objection uh, is sim- somewhat related in that, you know, you receive assurance from Christ and it's his works, not ours. Uh, some people object saying it's labeled antinomian, right? So it's you're against the law because now you have assurance in Christ. And so you're just going to throw it out. You're just, well, whatever, I'm good. So they label it antinomian. It's an objection. Chris, should we, Chris, mm. should we welcome the, the accusation of being antinomian in light of Romans? <laughs> yeah, absolutely not in light of Romans 6. How about the accusation? Should we yeah. welcome the accusation? We just don't want it to be true. Well, okay. So what I would say is I, I understand why you're saying that, because you don't have covenant theology to explain the difference uh, between living out of thanksgiving and li- living out of the works of the law. You need that to sort it out. And so you're confusing law and gospel already, mm. even in making that charge. Mm. You, you say, well, you know, w- w- what do you mean by that? Well, when I understand that Mount Sinai uh, is articulating the principle of the works of the law, that is, obey to be blessed or to gain life, disobey to be cursed. I have a, a clear connection between law and its, its reward, life, right? We see that even in Luke 10, Luke 19, and mm-hmm. so forth. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, we have the, in the covenant of grace, we have Christ fulfilling the law for us in both its positive and negative, its penalty negative, and its positive, the righteous requirement. And because he's fulfilled it all now, he, now I'm united with Christ, and we have the duplex gratia, that is the, the double benefit of grace that comes through union with Christ. We're declared right with God because of what Christ has done. And now he's also, because of my union with Christ, by the Spirit of Christ, he begins to transform my life. We call that sanctification. Mm-hmm. And that principle of loving the law, Psalm uh, 19, mm-hmm. Psalm 119, loving the law, um, is because now I'm free because Christ has taken that condemnation, because Christ has fulfilled the demand. And now I'm adopted. I'm in his family. So what it does is it changes my position. Uh, as the works of the law, I'm, I'm a servant. I'm a slave. I'm outside the family. And laid before me is the reward of, of life if I perpetually, perfectly obey. I can't mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. But what Christ does is he brings me into the family. And yes, there's chores, but I don't do those chores to get access. I've already have access. So now I love to do the chores as a reflection of my identity because of the security that I have in Christ. So it's outside of the family, inside of the family. And the covenant arrangements, covenant of works, covenant of grace, explain the outside of the family versus inside of the family. And without that, yes, you're going to be charged with uh, neo-nominism, uh, antinomianism, because you don't understand the distinction. And that's, it's yeah. critical for us. Good, yeah. good. Yeah, so when it says in Romans chapter six, we're not under law, but we're under grace. Yeah, it's under the under the works of the law under uh, Mount Sinai. Yeah, 
We're not under there to, to try to gain heaven, to gain the reward of life. It's like Paul said in Romans seven fourteen, the law that promised me life proved to be death. Um, so we're, we're not under that law uh, for the promise of life because Christ has fulfilled that. We are under grace, meaning we're united with Christ as the fulfiller of the law, both penalty and promise. Mm. And uh, n- now the law is a, a tutor, a guide. Um, if I could add one more, and this is where you got to corral me, Pat, is that I love the Mar of Modern Divinity and the way Edward Fisher and Thomas Boston explained it. Um, just It's a beautiful, simple analogy, but when the, the Ten Commandments, the tablets, were outside of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, and the people committed idolatry, it's crushed, and they're forced to drink the bitter drink. It's a covenantal curse. But when the tablets are placed inside of the Ark, propitiated with blood, now what it's, it is doing is leading them through the wilderness. It's a guide. Uh, it's, a, it's a tutor. And so it, it has to do with whether we're in Christ or outside of Christ. And it helps us under explain our relationship to being under the law versus being under uh, grace. Perfect. So yeah. we are not under law, but under grace for justification because yeah. Christ has done that for us. That's in light of Romans 1 to 5. But then in Romans 6, he does tell us to obey. Mm-hmm. He tells us about doing We're righteousness. In the family. We're in the yeah. family. So yeah. now out of gratitude. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So um, a book I'll recommend, since you recommended The Morrow, sure. uh, I'll recommend Walter Marshall's book, uh-huh. The Gospel yeah. Mystery of Sanctification. Yeah. We've recommended that on other episodes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Really yep. great. And yep. there is one chapter in there that's really strong about obedience, yeah. but it's in the context of Christ has been really strong yeah. in redeeming right. you and yes. saving you. Yeah. And so now you do want to obey and it's really yeah. vital and it's not an option. Uh, but when you, when you affirm classic covenant theology, covenant of works, covenant of grace, covenant of redemption, I, I think in one sense, it's reasonable that somebody's going to say, I think that's antinomian. Well, reasonable in the sense that your justification is sure. Yeah, right. You can't get more justified. Right. Um, but you're not saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and, and where God leaves you alone, right? You had yeah. duplex gratia. It's, yeah. it's the double yeah. benefit. And yeah. So, Amen. Yeah. I, I kind of like the objections because at least in one sense, people are hearing us rightly. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Right? Paul, yeah. Paul anticipates the objection. Right. right, yeah. So maybe, listeners, if people are not objecting to you when you present the gospel to them, if they're not at least saying, hey, does this mean yeah. mm-hmm. I yep. can keep on sinning and everything's going to be okay? Mm-hmm. It's great to say, I'm so glad yeah. you asked. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. Because you've been clear. But if you front load your presentation of the so-called gospel with all of this, mm-hmm. all of these conditions yeah, can, and all yeah. of these things you must do, and they're not saying, hey, does this mean I can party? Um, you've, right. you've not been clear. Right. right. And, and, and classically, that's been described as antecedent and subsequent conditions. Antecedent are those requirements of the, uh, the law, um, the covenant of works, to, to get in, uh, if you will. But we can't. Only Christ can do that. And the subsequent are fruit. It's those things that come as a benefit of what Christ has already done for us. Um, and, and those distinctions are, are vital, but they only make sense in light of covenant of works, covenant of grace. Yep. Mm. Now, there are people who have affirmed covenant of works, covenant of grace, who end up uh, getting some of the stuff wrong. But um, I, so there is that. But it yeah. is intri- intriguing to me right now where um, popular evangelicals who are not they don't have their wagon hitched to classic covenantal mm. right. uh, aspects, how they're getting this wrong. Well, it's no wonder you're getting it wrong. That somehow you have to do more to be justified finally. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you're, you're not anchored in 
the, the, the right category. So I guess it makes sense yeah. right. that you're coming to wrong conclusions. Right. Because right, you've got to deal with conditions in Scripture. Great right. point. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Talk, yeah, yeah. talk about I that. I mean, it's Romans 2, right? There's our classic text. Mm-hmm. I think that was for us, I'd say 10, 15 years ago, was profound. Uh, the doers of the law will be justified. That's a condition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The doers of the law will be declared right. So what do you do with that? Where do you put that? You interpret it in light of chapter 3 is what <laughs> right. you do. That's what you need to do. And <laughs> Romans yeah. 5. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Right. Yeah. So, Romans 2.13, litmus test. It is there true. Is an episode. Okay, let's do another one of these objections. Yeah. Um, how about how, covenant theology can't be true because I've never heard of it before, <laughs> and I'm a mature Christian. Well, I'm sure you've heard of the word theology before and covenant before. <laughs> okay. Let's put the two okay, together. <laughs> but Chris, you and I have both yeah. known people, talked for to sure, people, engaged sure. people who they are... They want the exact phrase and exact text. Yeah, and some, some are sweet people, some aren't <laughs> so sweet, but they might say... I know this is wrong because it's it's new to me, sure. and by now, because I've been a Christian for thirty years or whatever, um, it can't be right because it's not in my vocabulary. Right? Um, well, how do we respond to that kind of objection? Yeah. Well, and there, there's so many dimensions to that too, right? I mean, if you find uh, terms like the covenant of peace, um, the council of peace, which is, if you've read the Old Testament, you'll see that phrase used. Mm-hmm. We don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to interpret that. So it becomes a, an interpretive issue of can you allow the whole of Scripture to interpret itself? Uh, can you use one, ch- uh, let's say, chapter 20 of a, a book to interpret chapter 1, or can you only stay right there with mm-hmm. your limited mm-hmm. knowledge in chapter 1? I've seen sure, that. Yeah. Uh, teaching a book before. I was told I'm not allowed to read chapter one in light of chapter 20. And you're like, what, what's going on? This is a divine author. It'd be like saying, I can't read Lord of the Rings, the final conclusion in light of the Hobbit. Right. Um, it's, he's got to be a different Bilbo. You know, it's, it's, just, it's all you've got. It's the only, you just picked this up and that's all the information I have. So that must is that be from what Star Wars. Is. <laughs> yeah. or, or, is that Star Wars or Star Trek? Oh, I kid. I'm, that, a, that, I'm that's, a fan. I'm that's a fan. Right. Um, so, and, and, and our, uh, pushback on that would be the same thing with the issue of the fall or sin in Genesis chapter 3, right? You, you understand that there's something going on here, but how do you, how do you describe that? And, and as Scripture is unfolding it, it is the divine author, the Holy Spirit, is interpreting for us um, the ramifications of Genesis chapter 3. The same thing with the Davidic covenant, right? In 2 Samuel 7, yep. I'll get the first, mm-hmm. first Chronicles as well, I think it's 14, where the covenant uh, term covenant is not used, but later in Psalm 89, it, it interprets it uh, for us in light of the Davidic covenant. Yeah. And we don't bat an eye when we see that. Sure, yeah. um, so it's almost like we put limitations. Uh, we have a presupposition for what we want mm. to see yeah. in the text. Now, you love stories and you love journeys, right, Pat? Um, <laughs> just a minute. God Let me get on the sofa. <laughs> there you go. That's what this is for. Um, for me, uh, but years ago... Um, I'd come out of a certain seminary taught dispensationalism, and I, I wasn't given, um, at least we weren't assigned to read the Reformers. Um, there might have been some quotes here and there. So I was limited to the dispensational interpretation of uh, what the Reformers were writing. So you fast forward uh, five years down the road, and I'm uh, tasked with with uh, doing a training center. And um uh, humility would say that if I'm going to represent these different views, that I needed to read them. And so one of the first books I cracked was John Flavel, or Flavel, or Flavel, however you want to say his last name. <laughs> Let's say Flavel. <laughs> I was a homeschooler, Flavel so good. I had to like, make it up. 
But nah, um, the fountain of life was for me, uh, it actually taught me uh, the exegesis of, of Isaiah 49. And, and in Isaiah 49, you see this compact, and I'm using that intentionally, just trying to prepare you for the word covenant, um, between the Father and Son, in which the Son and the Father are, are can I say this loosely? Yeah, we understand it's an analogy looking back before the foundation of the world, so we do want to be careful, but it's an analogy nonetheless that, that's been revealed in Scripture of the Father and Son bartering over the elect and, and the extent of that elect. It's not just Jews, but it's also Gentiles. And, and so the son is going back and forth with the father and saying, um, is, that's, that's it? You know, what's my recompense? What's my reward? These are covenantal terms mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that Scripture actually interprets. If you look at other covenantal contracts um, that's made between Joshua and the, and the Gibeonites or, or what have you, I'm just giving one illustration, a very simple illustration of covenantal pacts. Um, and then you find that within this covenantal pact between the Father and Son, that's going to involve the Holy Spirit because the Spirit of God is going to be given to the servant to carry out his mission. You find that, the, that Isaiah 49, uh, verse 8 says, In a time of favor, I will make you, it's also in Isaiah 42, I will make you a covenant for the people. So Christ himself is the substance of this covenant. Mm-hmm. It is in the context of grace in the New Testament. Uh, we could look at these texts, but 2 Corinthians 6, 2 will take the verbiage of Isaiah 49, that in time of favor, in a day of salvation, in this context of covenant, and unfold, you know, 2 Corinthians 5, right? New creation in Christ, um, the imputation, the double imputation of righteousness and sin to Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, mm-hmm. uh, the, the promise in chapter 7 that I will walk with you and, and uh, you will be my people and I will be your God. That's all placed, it's all an unfolding, it's all an exposition from Paul. Paul in gospel context of Isaiah 49. So you began to see, I did, as I'm being led by the pastoral ministry of John Flavel and Fountain of Life, that it's exegetical, it's textual, and the apostles are also just um, bringing its, its full weight to bear in the uh, gospel ministry of the church. So it was a hit, you know, hit my forehead moment of I was told that uh, it's not exegetical, it's not biblical. And the reason why, I think, is because they've told me I need to find this phrase. And if I can't find that phrase, right. then it doesn't exist. Right. Right. So yeah. what's interesting is you're, you're explaining all of that. You, one still could be unaware of the labels afforded to us from sure. church history. Sure. Yeah. But you're also reading other things and and being able to say, oh, yeah. there are all the components right. of, and now all of a sudden before you know it, you say, oh, there is, there are the components of a covenant of redemption. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's just, that's just the label. Yeah. But in part, my point is yeah. maybe sometimes people who've been Christians a long time, they've been reading their Bibles, sweet people, many of them, mm-hmm. they just don't, they, they've not, been exposed to church history or historical theology sure. to say all of this awesome data from Jeremiah right. hmm. or Isaiah. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a word for that. Christians have been calling it something just sure. like yeah. we call um, yeah. a certain something Trinity. Yeah. Right. So yeah, yeah. That's a great example. Lots of Christians. Static union. <laughs> yeah. Christ, lots yeah. of Christians we have known and I, th- I guess we have been them as well. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. We're serious about the text of scripture. Right. Uh, we come to discover wonderful things, but if you don't know what our ancestors have been talking about, debating right. their vocabulary, their language, uh, we're going to hear the phrase covenant theology and say, well, that can't be right. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a reminder, Ephesians 4, that God has given officers to the church to lead and to teach for the work of ministry. And that's not just my local church. That also includes what God is building 
um, you know, in Christ Jesus throughout the ages. Um, and in fact, Ephesians um, 3, 20 and 21 says that the, the church brings him glory for all generations forever and ever. Amen. Mm-hmm. So we are listening to the church. And I know people will say, and I think it's an overreaction to the great tradition that we shouldn't use any tradition. That's another fancy word for that which has been given to us or doctrine, mm-hmm. um, right? And, and we don't want to have anything alongside the Bible, um, I would remind our listeners that when you sit in the, underneath the pulpit ministry of God's Word, you have a teacher, and you're already assuming that God has gifted teachers to explain the Word of God to you. Mm-hmm. So to say that's okay, but then I can't step outside and allow the church as mm-hmm. a whole and its officers throughout history to also come alongside and encourage me. Um, we're not denying that Scripture is uh, sola, that it is the ultimate authority, but at the same time, He's given us... Uh, edification uh, through officers um, to to instruct and to yeah. help us along. Yep, yeah. and we have yeah. so much of that written down in confessions that can be mm-hmm. tested and yep. examined and passed down. It's kind of right. interesting yeah. to think what would happen if you know you met an. Uh, I, a, 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 I keep saying sweet, an evangelical who's read their Bible for a long time and they've been exposed to some church history, but they're a little skeptical of these things. Mm-hmm. If they went on a mission trip to some faraway land where sure. people had had Bibles for a long time, mm-hmm. but no Bible teaching, nothing extra. And if you could fly there, land there, hang out with those people and they're learn- and they're explaining to you about how, how we have the father is God and the son is God and the spirit <laughs> is God, but there's only one God because yeah. they're being biblical. And, and hopefully that person would say to them, Oh yes. And we have a label. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. And it's not in the Bible, but it's called Trinity. Right. I think lots of Christians could get on board with that sure. because they've been discipled with enough church history, maybe just mm-hmm. a little bit yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. to know that Trinity is right. Right. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. maybe not. Uh, this might not be as important as the doctrine of the Trinity, um, but it's really important. And yeah. We call it covenant theology, and it's just a label. It's shorthand to capture the right categories for the biblical data. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So you've already kind of gone there, and that's good. The wor- the whole word search thing, um, yeah. people don't like covenant theology because they can't find a word search that gives them the covenant of works. Yeah. Zero hits. Right, right. None at all. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, but you see terms like the law of works uh, and Paul contrasting uh, in Galatians 3 and 4, um, even using synonyms of like covenant alongside of that. Uh-huh. Um, but yes, um, they like to limit itself to the historical covenants. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and we've already talked about Trinity. You already mentioned hypostatic union. Mm-hmm. We, yeah. we, we utilize good labels and uh, we don't have to find exact verbiage for it to be right. In yep. fact, in church history, there have been times when people have used extra biblical labels to figure out who really believes the right biblical doctrines. Sure. Yeah. Let's, let's do sure. the next one. Let's do an objection to covenant theology. If you're just tuning in, you just dozed off or something. Uh, we're talking about covenant theology. Mike Grimes, yes. Chris Peterson, Pat Abendroth That's on right. the Pactum. And here's an objection. How about covenant theology does not come from a literal interpretation of the Bible. Ooh. It comes from some other kind of interpretation of, of the Bible. And I know literal is right. Covenant theology is not literal. It's allegorical or something else. And so I'm going to abandon it and believe something else because we must be literal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I get, like I tried to, to demonstrate in Isaiah 49, I just, I, I don't get that. Um, it, it seems to me that we want to take a phrase like covenant of redemption, covenant of grace, covenant of works, and say, I have to find that exact phrase. 
Um, so, for instance, on this journey, Isaiah 24 talks about uh, 4 and 5, an everlasting covenant that the world has, is under, and a curse devours the entire world. Um, and then Isaiah 25 walks out of this in light of the day of the Lord. A revelation begins to apply these themes. So when the text uses laws, statutes, in parallel with everlasting covenant, and then describes a curse that comes unto, upon the entire world, um, th- that's not ex- ex- exegetical. Uh, that's not <laughs> literal. Um, okay, so we're going to call it a covenant. It says eternal covenant. Uh, the pushback is, well, that's mosaic. Well, the text actually said upon the whole world. It uses the word for land, but paralleled with the whole world. Uh, so now you're going to tell me that's just uh, one particular location when the text literally said the whole world. Then it uses the term curse. Um, this is what we call works. There's, there's punishment. There's penalty. Um, now, it, you go, well, is this just, I mean, it's an isolated text. Um, then you, you correlate that with Hosea 6, 7. You correlate that with Galatians and Romans, Romans 2, um, in, in light of uh, punishment and reward, uh-huh. where Scripture begins to unfold what has already been said in Isaiah 24. So uh, then some will say, well, that's just proof, proof texting. <laughs> oh, that's just a way out. You know, it's in this context. Um, in fact, we could just unfold the entire context and bring Isaiah 53 into this, right? The Christ is the servant is bearing a curse. Uh, for us. And then we see the aspect of justified, justifies the many. Um, it's, I don't know, it's hard pressed for me uh, to hear that it's not literal, that it is typological, uh, that it's analogical, it's just made up, it's allegorical, when the text clearly lays that out. Mm. And then the next thing you're looking for, so if, if it assumes that I understand it, we're talking about in the middle of the Bible, what's, what comes before it? What comes after it? How does the Bible as a whole testify to this everlasting covenant. Um, is the Mosaic covenant everlasting? That the curses come upon Israel for their disobedience. This is the whole world that's brought underneath it. Romans 5 gives us an interpretation of this. And as I love, I love Lee Iron stuff, so I'm going to recommend his work on trespass. It's a covenantal term to even describe sin. Mm-hmm. Not only is it lawlessness, a law term, but it's also a covenantal breaking term. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Anyway, that, yeah. that, that's just that's just the covenant of works. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm joining you, Chris, to say I've had a I've had it about up to here yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with people saying covenant theology doesn't come from a literal reading of the Bible. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. um, I, I think it actually does. And why why are you the ones playing fast and loose with saying Hosea six seven doesn't say what it says? Like I'm not even supposed to be even even be able to use that as a text. Because somehow it Adam's means something other <laughs> right. than it says. It's a place. Yeah, it's now, a place. now who's yeah. acting like the theological liberal? It's right. not me. Right. So, and and yet at the same time, more and more as a pastor, pastoring people who are coming out of anti-covenant theology kind of mm-hmm. backgrounds, uh, people look at me like I'm crazy when I say, you know, God doesn't have a nose. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I, I, right. And we're having to explain yeah. where everybody everybody should agree it's not literal. Yeah. Right? But they think somehow everything is literal, and it just blows my mind. Yeah. You, you have to say, you know, God's nostrils, the fragrant aroma, to, to look at people on a Sunday morning and say, just so everybody knows, we, know, we all know that God doesn't have a nose, right? We're not Mormons. Right, yeah. Uh, so it's this weird insisting upon literal. Right. Yeah. And you and I, the three of us are willing to say, we can prove to you, based upon a normal reading of Scripture, sure. right. we call that literal, that the covenants are all there, intact, Yep. We're not playing fast and loose, finding hidden meanings, but then we tell people, you know, that the the 
woodenly literal figurative language isn't, and they're like, what? Anyway, mm, I'm, right. I'm off on a little bit of a no. pastoral tangent. Yeah, it's fair. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I love it. So Isaiah 24 lays it out, and then Paul, um, what material is he using when he's especially he's quoting from and paraphrasing and dropping in, we, we call it uh, threading, where he's taking uh, phrases, um, in this case from the Hebrew into the, the Greek translation, he's taking phrases and drawing it over so that we would, we would have a thread, a connect, connection back to the text that he is interpreting. Mm-hmm. We're just going to throw that out. I, so here's an example, Isaiah 49, we've already referred to that, father and son making a, a compact. Um, and then we have uh, Isaiah 49, verse 8, where Christ is said to be, he's the substance of that covenant. And it is in a provision of grace. This idea of tender mercy and grace are built around this. Now, if you're reading that as your foundation and you see the apostles are coming along, and what do they describe in 2 Timothy 1, 9, right? I mean, it's these classic texts that, uh, the, I'm just going to read it. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now, before the ages began, it's given in Christ. What is he referring to here? How should I interpret this idea of grace? Well, Isaiah 49 has told us there's a compact between the Father and Son. Christ is the covenant. It's in a time of favor. Um, so, so what are we to do with that? We're just to disconnect uh, 2 Timothy 1, 9, and 10 from Isaiah 49. How, how should we? Okay, take a literal uh, connection. Uh, what is this grace? Uh, it's the grace that is Christ, Isaiah 49. Uh, when was this grace given? Uh, this grace is secured in Christ before the ages began. Uh-huh. Uh, Isaiah 49, father and son making a compact. Uh, and then in verse 10, it has now been manifested through the appearance of our, our Savior Jesus Christ. So you need a manifestation of that and you need a compact, a, a provision, a, a givenness, if you will, in Christ before the ages began, which is the, the foundation. He said, because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So uh, again, this isn't just being made up. This is the hmm. apostles unfolding and expositing uh, the theology that Isaiah has already unfolded for us. It's the gospel according to Isaiah. <laughs> yes, that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. That's right? what it is. Right? right? Yep. I remember several years ago you saying, when people were saying, you know, you can't interpret the old in light of the new. And you said something to the effect of, we don't, we don't need the New Testament to interpret the old. And you didn't mean that right, right. Whole, you know, entirely, right. but Isaiah himself yes. has, does all of this. He's, yeah, and the apostles are just drawing it out. Uh-huh. Yep. Fascinating. So what, what about the objection uh, to covenant theology that says, well, covenant theology can't be true because it's new. You know, it started oh. with Coxeus or yeah. Olivianus, right. uh, and so it's, it's new. How do we respond to that? Yeah, and that you and I have talked about this a few times. I just appreciate uh, Legan Duncan's work. Uh, and I have it pulled up here, the covenant idea in Antinicene theology. So it's going before Nicaea. Nicaea is about 325, the council there that um, articulates uh, the, the Trinity so gloriously. So Nicaea comes so before, before or after the Reformation? Yeah, oh, yeah. But what did I say, 325? <laughs> I didn't say BC, did I? <laughs> also, sometimes no. fall into that. My, uh, the students will be like, wait a minute. <laughs> That's really BC. early. Uh, no, and I, I love his uh, dissertation there because what he's done is he is uncovering for us um, the early church pastors, let's call them that, um, as they're describing uh, covenant theology. And, of course, Fesco's latest works are just— uh, they're, they're diamonds in the rough, so to speak. I mean, it may mm. take some difficulty to, to work through as lay people, but 
um, just the, the quotes, uh, the context of that are, are vital. What I would want to point out is that for the early church, um, they, there's a couple things that you need to recognize is they're defending Christianity against the Jewish attack that Christ is not the Messiah. And so for them, they're using uh, covenant of works with Adam, covenant of grace in Christ. Now, they're not always using those terms. Some of them, like Augustine's going to use more particular terms. Um, but again, we don't need to be naive like that. We can understand the context that they're writing in mm. um, by the descriptions that's being used. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and they're defending Christianity. They're, they're defending its substance in Christ based upon um, covenantal interpretation. So we're talking... Well, we're talking 2nd AD, 3rd AD. Um, there's another aspect that's important, too, and that is to think of the early church, they're Jewish. So there has been work that's been done of early Jewish, um, um, and an early Jewish understanding of the nature of the covenant of works, uh, covenant of grace that already precedes, if you will, the, uh, the New Testament. So when the church is being formulated by Christ Jesus, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, there's already a early mindset a seed form, if you will, of, of uh, covenant theology. And there's been work that's been done on this. Yep. Um, so, mm. Talk, yeah. And seeing the differences between law and gospel. Right. So it's Absolutely. not always the same verbiage. Right. right. And but, I think we've tried to show that in Isaiah. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. They had that. <laughs> true. True. But, uh, there is another article we can link to. I can send it to you, Mike, uh, from Ligonier.org, um, The History of Covenant Theology by R. Scott R. Clark. Clark. Sure. Um, that helps. Uh, it also is important that we remember that there's this thing that we would call doctrinal development. Mm. So you mentioned seed form. These mm-hmm. things, have, well, they're in the Bible, but also even with categories, they're, they're, they didn't start in the 1600s, the 1500s. The Reformation really is a time for hammering things out because of the debates with Rome. Yeah. And so a lot of great formulation happens, but it didn't, it didn't start there. It's not sure. that new. Yeah. But... Um, doctrinal development is important, and if you've never thought about that before as you're listening to this, right, there are debates that happen. And so both sides claim the Bible, and they have to fight it out. Who, who are the real, you know, real Christians, or who's actually really right about this? And we can refine our arguments and get better at arguing mm-hmm. our case, and then maybe we start using different labels, sure, yeah. and we refine which labels we use. Mm-hmm. So maybe they're not going to say covenant of works, covenant of grace, covenant of redemption, in the 300s, hmm. um, right. but it doesn't mean the concepts aren't, aren't there. Right. Yeah. Especially when the reformers are simply, they're trying to defend uh, that, that they're the true church and that Rome has gone off. Hmm. And so what they're doing is extensively quoting from the early church pastors to defend their position hmm. that uh, the reformers were the true Catholic church and Rome had apost- apostatized. Yeah. Yeah. So for some of you listeners who really want to do a deep dive, and maybe you're a little bit more in the know, there have been those who have said, John Calvin didn't believe in covenant theology the way that his followers did. Uh, and that was popular for a while. So Calvin against the Calvinists. And so, you know, Calvin didn't make the sharp distinction between law and gospel and covenant of works, covenant of grace. And uh, thankfully, that's been shown to not be true. Um, people like Richard Muller yeah, had done a lot of good historical and extensive work. Yeah. It simply wasn't true. Maybe Calvin didn't use the same exact labels, yeah. but his theology was essentially the same, and it was federal theology. It was covenantal yep. theology. Mm. Um, and Long so there's, there's not a big difference between Calvin and the Westminster Confession, for example, right. uh, even though there's some maturity because of debates. Yeah. So keep that in mind as you're, as you're thinking through the issues. Um, maybe um, some won't want to believe in covenant theology because if they do, it's going to be too costly. Hmm. 
Uh, and let's 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 approach oh. this one sympathetically. Sure. sure yeah. I just was speaking yeah. to someone not long ago, and they were concerned that if they tell other people they believe like we believe, mm. yeah. um, it might mean losing their funding as a missionary, hmm. sure, uh, or yeah. something like that. And it might cost them their job. That's an objection. Uh, so mm. how might we pastorally <laughs> help people? Yeah. Uh, in light of our experience. Yeah, you don't want to be like the liberals, who. Uh, just played fanciful with uh, confessions they were signing um, and, and uh, y- used the same terms, but it redefined them. Mm-hmm. Um, well, boy. Okay, let, let me just say this. I, I'm assuming you're coming out of, the listeners coming out of the similar background that, that at least I, I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's helpful for me that I found guys like Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse uh, teaching the Word. That was something that actually... Um, I teethed on um, yeah. as, a, as a, a young Padawan, I suppose. It was family devotions. Is that Lord of the Rings? Um, that one, that yes. one, I think that's Lord of the Rings. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so Donald Gray awesome. Barnhouse pastored the historic 10th Presbyterian yes. Church in downtown yes. Philadelphia. Yeah. Uh, later on, yep. James Montgomery Boyce would be known for that. Um, Riken was there. So yeah. it, that, that's the that's, church we're talking about. That's so, tradition. Talking about so Barnhouse. So in teaching the word. So he was a, a, a rare bird. Um, if that's how you say that. Uh, he, he would have held to the dispensational distinctions, and yet, ironically, he held to covenant theology. He taught uh, covenant of works, covenant of grace, covenant of redemption, mm-hmm. and the two Adams of uh, federal headship. So that, that's what I teethed on. Um, it, it was just, it, it's ironic. I'm not sure how all these uh, impacts work. Um, and then you have S. Lewis Johnson coming along, and you began to... to at least for me, I was exposed to his um, episodes um, from his website on dispensationalism, but he did a whole section on covenant theology explaining yeah. it. And really, I, I, I began to see that uh, y- you could be a dispensationalist. You could see that Israel-Church uh, distinction. In some sense, everybody does. Um, it's just a manner of um, aspects. Mm-hmm. But um, at the same time, to be able to hold to covenant theology because it's dealing with the law and the gospel, with election in eternity past, if we use that very loosely, um, uh, before the foundation of the world is probably a better way to, to describe uh, e- eternity in our perspective. Right. But those things are, are super were super encouraging for me uh, along the way. Uh, terms that uh, dispensationalists used in light of distinguishing, okay, one of the attacks uh, for covenant theology is we're just theologizing, we're just abstracting mm-hmm. um, the uh, historical covenants. So in other words, when we see the Abrahamic covenant and you see the Davidic covenant, they both seem to be unconditional. And so the, the charges that we're just abstracting grace from that. And I'm not saying that there aren't people who do that, and nor am I saying that there isn't a place to recognize those characteristics. Mosaic Covenant, um, the charge would be we're abstracting the works principle from that because of the do this to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Deuteronomy 30 rewards and, and promises. Right. So yeah, there is a sense in which you're, we're abstracting. But as I've tried to show, uh, to show earlier with Isaiah 49, Isaiah 24, we're actually allowing Scripture to speak on its own. So there is a sense in which both are happening. So w- what, am I, what am I getting at there with um, theologizing is that in the dispensational world, I heard terms like, well, to describe the unconditional, we have royal grants. It's unconditional. And we have vassal treaties to describe mm-hmm. the conditional aspect. Um, well, that's actually ancient Near East talk. So we're actually more comfortable 
theologizing the Abrahamic covenant as unconditional gracious, but we're going to use the term royal grant. That's safer than using the covenant of grace. And then we're going to theologize the Mosaic covenant, and that's, we're going to use uh, vassal treaty, suzerain. Um, it's ancient Near East terminology. Mm-hmm. We're still theologizing, but in this case, we've chosen to use an outside of scripture and outside of the family verbiage, and there's a place for that. Okay, I, I understand that. But we're more comfortable using that verbiage, at least being taught that in the institutions, than we are with the, I love to say, the family verbiage. Um, the verbiage that's been passed down through the church. I love to interpret scripture in light of the family. Why would I go outside of the family to, to interpret uh, scripture? Um, so that, why am I saying that? Because that was helpful for me to know, well, do I need to front load, come to works, come to grace, come to redemption? Can I use their verbiage? Can I use royal grant and vassal treaty because that's in the camp uh, to describe the distinct uh um, characteristics of these covenants. And I don't think I was compromising. I'm just simply using the verbiage that's describing those characteristics. Hmm. Um, so that's, that's one aspect. Uh, using scriptural language. Um, if, if Paul's free to talk about the um, principle of faith and grace and gospel in contrast to the works of the law, well, that's another way to get at it. Mm-hmm. Um, election. Uh, we looked at Second Timothy 1, 9, and 10. Ephesians chapter 1 would be another text. Mm-hmm. And, and we were seeing grace and redemption and, and uh, before the foundation of the world. I know Isaiah 49 says that Christ is that covenant, and we can describe it as a covenant of grace, but I can still use terms like election and redemption uh, or new covenant uh, to describe that. But what I want to do uh, clearly is to demarcate those distinct categories of law and gospel, mm-hmm. law and grace. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then patience um, I had to grow through this. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to learn that I'd rather use the family language than ancient Near East language. Um, and and by family, language. you mean the historic Christian, the historical Christian church, yeah. the great tradition. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because God has gifted the church with teachers. Um, and, and that allowed me to grow, but also maybe the church family to grow or the institution that I'm a part of. Um, so you're being patient. That's good. Mm-hmm. You're teaching the right theology. Yep. You, you're, you're, you're owning it. You under, you're yep. understanding it, but you're teaching the text in light of the categories. They support the categories. They go back and forth, but in, maybe you're not having to use all the loaded words right. that you know right. are loaded words because you're being yep. patient. And I used, as an example, Barnhouse, as Lewis Johnson, even MacArthur in his Titus uh, introduction section. Covenant um, of Redemption. Covenant of Redemption. Yeah. He actually uses in his How to Study the Bible, it's an early version, the term covenant of works to describe the Mosaic. And he uses covenant of grace. Now, uh, it's not quite as distinct as we would right. uh, be comfortable with. But, you know, that's still helpful in describing the distinction between law and gospel. Sure. You're going to know, I'm going to, I want to know my audience. And eventually I'm going to use the language that Christians have been yeah, using for a long it's time. Safest. You want to help them, help bring them along. Yeah. Uh, I can remember pointing out to people, you know, Lewis Berry Chafer, who, you know, so many dispensationalists love. Mm-hmm. Well, he talks about a covenant of redemption. And so, yeah. oh, okay, I, I guess some dispensationalists have believed it. I, yep. I, he believed yeah. a lot of really uh, other really weird things, but use them where you can. I just pulled out from Mike's extensive library he here. Did. Yep, it's one um, of my. Uh, it's it's, it's an heirloom. <laughs> I do have Larkin's charts here, um, and this is it doesn't get any more dispensational no, than Larkin's charts. <laughs> and here under the covenants, oh look, the Adamic covenant, Genesis. So there's Je- another label, right? right? <laughs> the Edenic covenant, yeah. and uh, so as long as we use Eden and and Adam, Adam that's yeah, fine, Eden, right? It's fine, it's all good. <laughs> and so then yeah, eventually you end up saying, and you know, theologians have also referred to these as. Mm-hmm. 
the covenant of covenant works. works. Right. Yeah. Explain yeah. why. Yeah. But at the eventually you just move on and hopefully you don't run out of patience. Right. And it's that. important because you do need to to delineate and describe the works principle, uh, the reward and uh, penalty. You've, yeah. you've got to put that somewhere. Yep. Mm. Just a few weeks ago, somebody asked me, a visitor, they were here for a couple of weeks, and they said, are you, are you a Calvinist? Mm. I, I, I don't ever use that language really from the pulpit per se. I mean, not. Sure, and I yeah. just said, what do you mean? And he, he couldn't explain what he meant. Yeah. And I knew <laughs> I should just talk about, I knew he'd been warned. <laughs> yeah. I, I knew to sure. just go to Ephesians 1 and talk about predestination and different things and dead and trespasses and sins in chapter 2 but so we are we, we do want to be patient and try to help people see things in the Bible right but eventually we end up using labels yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah I think yeah. I, I think that's natural it's cultural to do things like oh, that oh sure for sure yeah yeah quick hand yeah yeah and eventually you take your lumps right you you, you go for it and say yeah. Here we sure. go. All right. Well, we need to get things rolling. Uh, another objection would be, uh, we have a couple more that we want to talk about today. Uh, one would be, uh, another one would be that covenant theology is Christ-centered, uh, and Christ-centered recently has been criticized because yeah. um, that's just a New Testament thing, and if you're Christ-centered, you interpret the Bible in light of Christ, and certainly covenant theology interprets the Bible in light of Christ because yeah, we sure have, as we started the show the divinely inspired way of reading all of the Bible, yeah, right? right. Uh, Romans chapter five. So right. what's your pushback to somebody saying that's not helpful because it's Christ centered. Right. And again, I think we just don't understand labels, right? Um, I think the word Messiah, the anointed one, um, Psalm two kinds of texts right. uh, is the same uh, meaning Christ under the the Old Testament and the the Hebrew. Um, so if you're hearing what Chris is saying, and hopefully you are, but if you're not, Christ really the concept is Old Testament. Yes, right. Yeah. The Messiah, the, Messiah, the anointed, anointed one. So um, <laughs> there's that. So right, there's, it, it'd be pretty yeah. good to interpret the Old Testament like the Old Testament. That would be a good <laughs> idea. <laughs> right, and we're going to start because with Genesis. it is a Christ centered, absolutely Messiah centered yep. book, and, and so is the new. Yeah. Where does it start? Genesis 3.15, I loved it. We, we have seed ideas and, and unfolding of the seed for a reason because of Genesis 3.15, that the seed promise um, would crush the serpent's head. There would come a seed. And Paul interprets that in Galatians 3 and 4 to describe a singular offspring um, through whom a corporate offspring would be united with who would, who would uh, provide victory over the uh, curse, over sin, over the rebellion against God. And then we begin to see that seed promise unfolded through the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic and so forth. And so we, mm-hmm. we see this stream, like this threading, if you will, um, of gospel promises, of Even back in promises. Mosaic, Moses, yep. Moses talks about somebody will come after me yes. like me, right? right? Absolutely. It's yep. looking forward to Christ. Yep. We know that. Yep. Yeah, Deuteronomy 18. Christ-centered. Yeah, good. For sure. And then Hebrews 11, it was just, maybe we're just a little concerned, you know, maybe Moses really didn't get it right, or maybe God, <laughs> I don't know, he really didn't communicate clearly to Moses in light of the greater prophet. And Hebrews 11 comes along and says that Moses even uh, traded in the treasures, the reproaches, actually, the reproaches of Christ as more valuable than the treasures of Egypt. Uh, Jude chapter 1 uh, refers to Christ. And you can look at some uh, wonderful theological and um, uh, research work done on the term uh, for Jesus that Jude uses. Uh, you can find some of the early manuscript evidence that um, 
The Spirit of God was identifying the uh, angel of the Lord, the one who delivered Israel out of Egypt, as none, none other than Jesus Christ. So the New Testament comes along and affirms what we should already know to be true if we mm. haven't gotten the message from the Old Testament. <laughs> Sorry. Our final objection for today, actually, we're not going to really address because, because. we're going to save it for a different, a different episode. So the final objection that we were going to talk about today is that covenant theology can't be true because it's the opposite of dispensationalism. Mm. Now, Chris has already made it clear that it's not actually the opposite of dispensationalism because some dispensationalists, right. like S. Lewis Johnson, right. uh, like Donald Gray Barnhouse, yeah, yeah. actually were dispensational yeah. and affirmed, affirmed the covenant, yeah. uh, co- uh, covenant Co- theology in its category. Yeah. So yeah. there is that. And if you're a dispensationalist, we like to say, come on in. The water's warm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can affirm covenant of redemption, covenant of works, covenant of grace, and still believe in a future for national geopolitical Israel mm-hmm. and be a dispensationalist. So our favorite dispensationalists are those who affirm covenant theology, and uh, we, we would love to have you be part of that team. Having yeah. said that, let's do another episode with Chris. Yeah, let's have sure. Chris back, and let's do an episode. Maybe we'll call it something like questioning dispensationalism. Hey, that'd be exciting. And it'll be kind of opening up a whole new vista. We'll talk about some other kind of pimento sandwiches or something oh, like that. Oh, I'll go try something and, else. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let's save that for another episode. Chris, yeah. thank you for being on. We love My having pleasure. you on the Pactum. Yeah. We love serving together with you. Uh, it's been insightful and helpful. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Absolutely. Chris. Well, thanks for being a part of the Pactumverse and listening to today's episode. If you want to find us online, you can find us on Twitter and on Instagram. You can email us, connect at thepactum.org. See you again next time on The Pactum. Mm-hmm.